I grew up in India where there is more rote memorization. Education is more streamlined. This is the only way you do things. But when I was started to teach myself how to create art, along with teaching the skills, you know, how do you use your hand and the paper? A big part of it was also, how do you think about things? How do you allow information to come into your brain? And how do you storytell in inventive, creative ways? You know, I credit all of that as the journey that brought me here. Hello, and welcome to a new season of Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with multidisciplinary visual artist Sukanya Mani. Sukanya's works are intricate and mesmerizing paper sculptures that seem light as air, able to move and twirl with the slightest breeze. What's not immediately apparent, however, is that she's made each irreversible cut in her material with the intention of representing a pretty weighty story or theme that she's explored in depth. For instance, to name a few, the way gravity affects light, the relationship between physiological, psychological, and cosmological time, how clothing and adornment affect how a woman's sexuality is perceived. She does her research and then picks up her scissors or utility knife. In recent years, Sukanya has made quite an impression on her hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, and the region around it. She's been commissioned to create public works for several Missouri cities, including Poplar Bluff, Lee Summit, and Brentwood. Last year, a piece of hers was displayed in St. Louis's International Airport, and she was commissioned to create a piece for Florissant Performing Arts Center. She's currently completing the Beside Between Beyond project, an installation that explores domestic abuse, in particular as it impacts immigrant and refugee populations. A portion of that project is currently on view at Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis through February 12th, so be sure to check it out if you're in the area. Sukanya spoke to me from her home in Baldwin, outside of St. Louis, I started the interview by asking her just how she arrived at her very specific artistic practice. It is a journey. (laughs) I was uh, born in India and I grew up there. My dad uh, was in the Indian military and we moved every couple of years. And the schools that I went to were uh, in the northeastern and northwestern border states of India bordering China, Tibet, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, that area. And our schools didn't have any arts education, none at all, like absolutely none. And so it was a self-discovery at that age. I didn't have the privilege of learning art as a child, but I know that I did a lot of drawing and doodling and storytelling in different ways when I was younger. So do you remember your first discovery of art as such? Yes, it was um, comic books. Just loved reading. And uh, India is rich in mythology, uh, stories of, you know, ancient gods and goddesses. And I used to read these comic books, which echoed the stories my mom told me when she put me to sleep. <laughs> so I I would just start copying some of those and 
drawing visual representations of the stories I heard and then the people I saw, just trying different ways of creatively presenting what I was hearing. And then uh, I came to the United States after studying, uh, after graduating in chemistry. That was my, my college education was in biochemistry, organic chemistry. And when I came to the United States, I was on a dependent visa. So when you're on a dependent visa, you cannot work. Uh, you mm -hmm. have to wait for a couple of years for that process to go through. And I'm so glad that at that time I decided to not think of this as time wasted, but really discovering what it is that I wanted to do and how would I go about doing it. The, the resources in the United States at that time, the libraries and <laughs> the advent of YouTube that came up and the internet, all of that gave me the help to become a self-taught artist. Those things helped with the skill building, you know, drawing, painting, paper cutting, all of that. But the biggest change or the biggest shift was in the way that I thought or I started thinking about life. Oh, say more about that and how and how it affected your creativity. It was uh, life changing, completely shifted the way that I perceived and presented myself. I uh, grew up, like I said, I grew up in India where there's more rote memorization. Education is more streamlined. This is the only way you do things. But when I was started to teach myself how to create art, along with teaching the skills, you know, how do you use your hand and the paper? A big part of it was also how do you think about things? How do you allow information to come into your brain? And how do you storytell in inventive, creative ways? You know, I credit all of that as the journey that brought me here. Your bio contains this wonderful sentence, which is transforming the violent act of cutting into an act of creation is central to my artistic approach. Could you explain what that violence of cutting means to you in both your life and your art? First of all, I'm using a sharp object like a knife, <laughs> which can, you know, uh, I have had so many paper cuts and so many knife cuts <laughs> in my fingers while I was experimenting and learning this process. So it's literally a painful experience to get there. But also, it's a very final act of destruction. I look at paper cutting as a craft very similar to sculpting. Uh, but sculpting stone or marble, because once you chisel into something, it's out. It's very hard to put it back the way it was. And paper even more so, because even if you crumple parts of paper, there's really no putting it back to its old pristine self. It's an activity. It's something that I'm bringing to the craft is cutting into it, removing, and then disturbing it, you know. And what I'm doing is allowing it to take on a completely new shape and form and the way it reacts to light. So it's a close dance of destruction and creation, the entire process. So when you approach that sheet of paper or that panel of Tyvek, do you draw on it? How do you, how do you start conceptualizing your design? So most of the design making happens in my sketchbook. So I am constantly 
writing notes to myself and drawing designs. I would say 90% of the work happens in the sketchbook because I'm constantly rearranging things, recomposing the way it looks, and it gives me a base. But when I actually cut into the paper, very, very rarely do I draw into it. You know, the scale is different from my notebook. It's usually much bigger. And it also morphs into something very different when it's at a different scale. The cutting that happens is very organic. I just build from one cut to the next to the next. So it can really change with the music that I'm listening to or the audiobook that I'm listening to. I can make larger cuts, smaller cuts. It's really a very organic process. You strike me as being very fearless in a few ways, one of which is that you are self-taught and came to your passion through experimentation. You never seem to censor yourself or question yourself. And then the other way in which you strike me as fearless is, of course, the way you just you said it yourself. In cutting paper, there's no room for error. You can't go back. <laughs> so I wonder if you can talk about how you cultivated that fearlessness in your artistic pursuit. Oh, wow. I'm uh, surprised to hear you say that because <laughs> I don't view myself as fearless, but, but oh. I think you, you may be right in many ways because I do jump in and I don't think of what the what the end would be. You know, I do something for the sake of doing it. I jump in and I say, okay, let's see what happens especially the first few years, right? While I'm experimenting and trying to find out what is the right way to express myself. Even today, I have this feeling of I don't have anything to lose. This is a path that my life has taken me in and I want to continue down this path. I'm very passionate about it. I really don't have anything to lose. <laughs> I just tell stories and then, and then I move on to the next story. Speaking of stories, I want to make sure we talk about the Beside Between Beyond project, right? Could you could you talk about how that came into being? Uh, yes, that, you know, there's this very specific moment that that kind of um, just took birth. You know, just the pandemic had just started. So it was 2020, sometime I would say April or May. It was just the time when all of us, the entire world, realized that this is not like a two-week, three-week thing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that shift that happened in all of us, like, oh my goodness, what is going on? This is a global phenomena. This is something we are all in together. And I remember feeling very overwhelmed. I'm sure like, you know, millions of people around the world feeling very unsure of what's going on, uh, very afraid. And one of the things that I do during those times to calm myself is just to say, you know, well, I have my family around me. We have a roof over our head. We have food on the table. So we should be grateful for what we have. You know, that's kind of what I was telling myself at that time to just say, okay, just stay calm. We have whatever we have. Let's just be safe inside our homes. And the very next day, I read a news article about people living in domestic violence situations. And it just hit me. It, it hit me straight out of that, that that home, that peaceful, we're all together, we have a roof over our heads, we have food on the table, that I had told myself is the very home that was actually prison for people living in those situations. And it really shifted my perception 
every situation has so many nuances, right? People are living in so many different situations. And that prompted me to start doing some research and finding out what are people doing in situations of domestic violence, especially in times of pandemic when you are housebound. You are not able to get out and you are not able to ask for help. And so it took a long time. It's a two-year journey of collecting data and information and stories and resources and presenting them to the general public in a way that hopefully raises awareness and helps giving some much-needed resources to people working in these communities and also living within these situations. So how did you go about translating your research into the initial sketches in your notebook? So it always starts as a storytelling process for me. I spoke to social workers who work with survivors of domestic violence and victims of domestic violence. I spoke to people who work, who interpret domestic violence victims from their language into English. And then I also spoke to people working in different organizations, organizations, even the admin part of it, people who write grants and things like, you know, just, I started right there. And I started collecting these stories. And as I was collecting these stories, you know, a particular line or a particular life event, I started honing in on that and drawing it out, trying to visually represent that one moment. For example, I spoke to a survivor of domestic violence who was in a situation of domestic violence for over 10 years. She said to me that she one one day just woke up, went and stood in front of the mirror, and she could not recognize herself. And that instance, that that one instant, she she realized that this is not okay, and she just walked out of that relationship. And it was very powerful. You know, the entire life story of this person was very powerful, but that one instant was something that I was sketching over and over again. How do I show a woman looking into a mirror, making that life-changing decision? So I took instances like that, pieces of story like that, which talk about these powerful moments in their life, but also keep the privacy of the person, right? It's really important to honor the privacy of the victims and survivors because they have gone through so much. We don't want them to relive these tragic experiences. So taking instances like that, translating it into a visual drawing, and then taking that visual drawing and making it into an abstracted concept, and then starting the process of paper cutting. That's how that that journey took that direction. Your work is, of course, mostly not two-dimensional. It demands space and air. What challenges does that create? I'm thinking even for storage, but what challenges does that create in terms of finding the right collectors and buyers? It's a big challenge <laughs> because... When people ask me about my artwork, I just direct them to my website because it's just easier for them to see it versus me trying to explain how I install my work. The other challenge is the fact that people are so scared that it's paper. (laughs) 
right. I, <laughs> I remember. I don't blame them. I'd be terrified. <laughs> Just the thought of dusting occasionally. Good Lord. I remember that I had submitted for a public art project at the St. Louis airport here in St. Louis. The committee came back multiple times saying, we're so scared somebody will tear this or somebody will accidentally break it or, you know, this is so delicate, it can be destroyed easily. Having said that, Tyvek is not that easily destructible. That's one. Some of the pieces are over five years old and I take them from one place to the other. I fold it and unfold it and, and I install it over and over again. But the second part of it, again, is I feel like if a piece of artwork gets destroyed, it's not the end of the world. You know, I can always recreate it. And I would rather that it's outside, people see it. And if it's torn or destroyed because of some reason, I would rather have that over it sitting in my basement or behind a piece of like where people cannot experience it and come stand next to it. Yeah, I don't have any problem with some of the pieces getting torn. I would prefer not <laughs> for that not to happen. <laughs> right. But yeah, again, it, it goes back to the fact that art is, my artwork at least, is meant to be seen and experienced and walked in the middle of. And uh, I want the audience to have that experience as much as possible. And now you're also getting, you've been getting commissions. How is that... Given that your work is a type of storytelling, do your commissioners ask for the general story in advance? Is it is it limiting or freeing to have a commission as opposed to self-generating your art? It can be challenging because it's not only what I come up with, what I cut into the paper, but installation is such a big part of it. All of my installations are site-specific. I have been very lucky in that Everybody who has commissioned my work understands the idea of site-specific work and how it looks in one picture may not be the exact way it turns out <laughs> at the site because, you know, we have to take in the direction of the light. We have to take in where the how the audience is experiencing the work. And even, I imagine, air currents. Yes, exactly. Right? Air currents yeah. and even the breadth of the person who is standing and watching the work sometimes gently sways the work, you know. And I have been, like I said, again, I have been very lucky in that my concepts are also abstracted. There's a huge part of it being an abstract piece of work, which my commissioners have understood and my audience has appreciated over and over again. There are some representational elements, but the idea of coming into a space, really feeling the soul of the space, if you will, and working with my artwork and the space, it is, to go back to your question, it's very freeing because I feel like it's really not in my control. Uh, as much as paper cutting is 100% in my control, you know, like I have, I'm very careful about how I cut and when I cut and how often I cut. The installation process is the exact opposite. I, I would say I have maybe 30% of control over what it will look like because of so many of the other factors that come into play. 
but it's it's also liberating it's it's like feeling like it's a child that i have <laughs> given birth to mm-hmm. but now they're taking uh an identity of their own <laughs> Now, one thing that I like to talk about on Art Restart is the way artists are reinventing outmoded systems of bringing their art to audiences. And I wonder if, given your experience living in in the Midwest, being a self-taught artist, really beating your own path as an artist, what could have been different systemically to make your process of discovery and art making easier? Oh, I can just talk to you about that forever. <laughs> there, are, Go ahead. there are so many things that I've had to discover on my own. It would have been easier if there was something in place uh, that would have made the journey a little easier. It could be something as easy as just having uh, support groups, just mm-hmm. like a place to meet other artists, to meet other resources in your community that support artists and then learn that way. That would have made it so much easier, right? That's one one step. The other is specifically for people like me who speak a different language, who have not studied in the United States, learning to write your own artist statement, learning to put together your bio. Not only do you have to write in a language that's not your own, about a process that you're only beginning to understand, but you have to write it in such a way that jurors who work in big art museums and contemporary museums are judging you on that. You know, they're judging you on your art, but you also have to be able to present it in text, in vocabulary. I think I, you know, my art making came naturally to me. That journey seemed you know, it just fell one step to the next, to the next. But all of these other things uh, I'm still struggling with, just writing proposals and putting it together, budgeting. Yeah, as a first start, you, you speak English fluently, but it's the art speak as a second language. That's the class. Yes, and even required. my English, it, it has taken me a very long time to be able to articulate myself. It's not my first language, you know, it, it it has taken a very long time to get here, which, you know, it could have been made, uh, I mean, some of these resources could have made the journey easier. And one of the things that I do here in St. Louis, and even not just in St. Louis, but especially, you know, people who come from immigrant backgrounds, they come in with whatever education they have, and they have to get to work right away (laughs) because they have to build a life for themselves and buy a home and all of that, right? So people miss out on all of these artistic and cultural pursuits that everybody, like all of us within us have. Uh, The the joy of figuring out what it is that you want to say and how you say it. So I talk to a lot of uh, new immigrants and new refugees and I say, if there's any any inclination of any artists or hobbyists even within you, please come and talk to me and I can share some of the resources I have. Really? How long have you been doing that? I've been doing it forever. (laughs) If I know that there is a grant here, I'll just send it to my friends and, and, you know, like anybody and everybody, not just immigrants and people who have come from different countries. 
but also to my, you know, American friends who have lived here forever. But you're saying a new immigrant has less room in which to create and explore because they have to survive. They have to survive. And also they don't know that these resources are here. They don't know that you can make a living as an artist. You know, a lot of the people I speak to from different countries, they don't think art is a viable way of making a career to support a family. I won't say you roll in money if you're you're an artist, <laughs> especially if you're starting, but it doesn't mean that it cannot be done. You can always, you know, find ways of supplementing your income. But I make it a point to share these resources so that people at least have an they have an option. They may or may not choose to do it, but at least they're not turned away at the onset. <laughs> and then Finally, what experimentation is coming up for you next, whether a new new story you want to tell or a new material? What's what's next in your plate? Some new materials. I'm playing with wire mesh a lot because it. I'm trying to combine wire mesh with paper and I'm trying to make some installations there. But I also, I just got back from India on a two-week trip to go visit my family I visited the northeastern part of India where I grew up, and I am still reeling from the beautiful, <laughs> I went and visited. That's the, I've never been, but I think that's the mountains, right? It's the mountains. It's a Himalayan mountain range. And where I went to, there is a, you know, a significant Tibetan refugee population there that have come and settled there. And I visited monasteries and spoke to people. I'm just in love with the idea of altar making. You know, how do you stand around a space and make a space a contemplative place of thinking? How do you use words and colors and images to support that contemplation for a viewer? You know, I saw hundreds of prayer flags (laughs) all over the monasteries and on the streets both contemporary and religious ritualistic prayer flags and the monasteries themselves were places of storytelling, right? A lot of that is swirling in my brain right now. (laughs) Oh, exciting. Yeah. Hey, have you ever had any of your work exhibited in India? I have not. And that's something that I'm really hoping to do. I'm really hoping to make some connections and, and, and show some work there. Uh, some relevant work, some work that, you know, directly ties in with my experience in India or some of the awareness building I want to do. Um, that's that's a dream. <laughs> well, it sounds like this new project that's swirling in your brain might be the one. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> If you'd like to read a longer version of this interview and see images of Sukanya's work, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. It's a new year and we're excited to speak with a wide range of truly inspiring change-making artists. You don't want to miss one, do you? Surely not, so be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast. And if you know of an artist change-maker in your community you think we should profile, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at PC Talenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.